Hi everyone, welcome to Baby Steps Nutrition, a podcast that focuses on nutrition, health, and wellness for families of children of all ages and stages. I'm your host, Argavon Neil Forouge, a pediatric dietitian and mom of two young children. My goal is to bring you impactful information that you can apply every day in a simplified, practical form to make life easier. Now let's get into today's conversation. Juliet Blount is an adult nurse practitioner in New York City, where she provides primary and women's health care to diverse patient populations. Juliet holds a bachelor's degree from Howard University, a master's degree in nursing, and adult nurse practitioner certification from Hunter College of the City University of New York. And she is an alumna of the Duke Johnson & Johnson Nurse Leadership Program. Juliet has 30 years of clinical experience in healthcare, has been recognized with awards for customer service, leadership, and clinical excellence. She is active in her local nurse practitioner professional organization and volunteers in her community by educating the public about becoming empowered healthcare consumers. Hi, Juliet. I'm so delighted that you're here. Hi, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really thrilled to start this conversation. It's my pleasure. I'm excited, especially for you to share your valuable perspective. And we met sort of by chance, and I'm glad that we did because everything that you speak about is everything that I wholeheartedly wanted to share on the podcast. So thank Great. you for being here. Of course. Um, I first want to start with, we hear the words equity and equality, and some people use them interchangeably, but they are not the same. What is the difference between those two words? Absolutely. Um, there's an infographic that has been circulating um, for quite some time that when I speak, I, uh, it's one of my favorite uh, slides in my presentation that really shows in a visual way the difference. Equality means that everybody gets the same thing. Equity means that everybody gets what they need to improve their condition or their environment or whatever it is that they need that it improves their situation. So in this society that we live in, there are many people who have more money than they could possibly spend in multiple lifetimes. They have a, a comfortable place to live. You don't have to worry about, you know, paying bills or, or paying mortgage or rent. They have good health insurance. If they, and, and even if they didn't have good health insurance, they have enough money to pay for the best care. So if we were to provide the same thing for everyone, a person who already has enough or more than enough is getting even more, which further widens the disparities between the haves and have nots mm -hmm. in a situation where there's equity those people in our society who do not need any help because they're good um won't get anything and that's okay because they don't need it um there are people in our society who just need a little bit of help those are the the working poor or even working class folks you know increasingly 
uh, need a little bit of help to improve their situation and their lives. And then there are those most marginalized, most vulnerable in our society who have difficulty getting the basic needs and necessities that you know are required for life. You know, a roof over your head, um, quality health care, food, you know, healthy food, access to healthy food, food, access to clean water. Those people in our society need the most help. So a model that is equitable provides the most help to those who need it, the a little bit of help to those who just need a little bit of help, and the resources that um, can be used to help those two groups don't need to be, I don't want to say wasted, but don't need to be provided to those people who already have enough or more than enough. So that's really what equity is about, about distributing resources and assistance and help to the people who need it the most. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about social justice, is that what we're talking about? We're emphasizing it's this equity. And so meeting people where they're at and, and learning about what their specific needs are. I would say social justice is is related to equity. Um, justice, really, justice and equity and the word fairness can be used interchangeably depending on where those words are applied. So I would say social justice, you could say social equity, you could say social fairness. Um, Those terms could be used to uh, describe the same thing. I think of social justice more in terms of um, the, the, um, what I'm trying to say, the uh, systems that govern our society that are unjust or unfair or unequitable. So when I'm thinking about the major systems, the criminal justice system, the educational system, the healthcare system, all of the major systems that govern our society, that's kind of what I think about in terms of social justice, equity, and fairness. Mm-hmm. And I want to ask about your backstory. How did you get into being a social justice advocate? Like, why is this your biggest passion and your life's mission? Well, I think living in my skin, living my lived experience as a Black American, um, I think, you know, kind of whether you want to or not, um, you you are you find yourselves in you you find yourself having to advocate for yourselves and for others, um, just in terms of our position in society and um, the legacy of slavery and discrimination that Black Americans have faced in this country. And my journey in terms of healthcare also speaks to that. Um, long story short, I was uh, working at an organization um, which I really loved the work that I was doing. Um, and I stayed there for six years, which was longer than I probably should have stayed um, because very soon after I started, it became clear that there was not racial equity within the organization. I was the first and only Black 
healthcare provider. That means nurse practitioner, physician's assistant, and physician, uh, not just in my clinical office where I saw patients, not just in the five offices that the organization had at the time, um, but the entire East Coast for the organization. So that was New York, Boston, Chicago, and Washington, D.C. And um, I, I often make people laugh when I say, you know, I've been Black for a long time, so I'm very familiar with being the first or the only in many of the spaces that I occupy, but I had never experienced anything like that before. Um, and, you know, I'm very outspoken. And so um, after a very short period of time, I start to ask questions and say, you know, why am I the only one here? And share with the leadership about you know, how the fact that I was the only Black provider, how that actually had a link potentially to poor outcomes for the diverse patient population that we were seeing in New York City. Because people that I, even though it was a predominantly white um, patient population, as well as providers, I saw a lot of patients of color, not just Black patients, patients of multiple races and ethnicities, a large LGBTQ following, because they would look on the website and, you know, scroll through and they'd be like, oh my gosh, there's one. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> and, and they would specifically seek me out. So, you know, I was having these conversations with leadership and the response was often like, well, you know, we, we just can't find anybody qualified. And I'm like, well, I went to a historically black college that has a medical school and a dental school and a nursing school and all of the things. Um, and there's multiple historically black colleges throughout the country. That's a, that's a, a resource that you could use to find qualified applicants. Then they'd say, well, you know, we don't accept Medicaid. So we don't really have to think about Um, focusing on diversity. And I was like, hmm, are you suggesting that because we don't take Medicaid, we don't have to focus on diversity because black and brown patients are all on Medicaid? Is that the assumption that we're making? Like, what exactly are we saying here? So there was just a, a, a real disturbing disconnect and lack of understanding about race, racial health disparities, um, and and health equity. So I was going to quit, but um, I was blessed to be one of 30 people from around the country who was accepted into the Duke Johnson & Johnson Nurse Leadership Program. And as part of the one-year program, we had to create what they call a transformational health project. And I decided to do my project on educating my lovely, but terribly ignorant often, um, colleagues about what race was, because I found that I could not have a higher level conversation with my colleagues in leadership about race. I couldn't talk to them about recruitment. I couldn't talk to them about the impact um, of the disparities on health outcomes because they didn't understand what race was. And these are highly educated folks, physicians, you know, and other healthcare providers. 
but that speaks to the systems in the United States that does not educate healthcare providers or anybody, really. We, we're seeing more and more how even our K through 12 education is being impacted by fear and misinformation about learning about race. So I structured my project teaching to teach people about what race is and why it matters. Um, my colleagues would often say, oh, Juliet, you, you, why are you always making such a big deal about race? We're the human race. I don't see color. It doesn't matter. You know, I take care of everybody and I don't care what color they are. Um, and that just really spoke to just how important it was that I really provide education. So, yeah, exactly. So that's that's really where where this journey started for me and has continued for me. Yeah. And a lot of research studies questionnaires are now revealing a the implicit bias that is so deeply ingrained in the healthcare system, but also when they ask patients and it's not so much about even if they have access to care, they feel like Yes, they want the practitioner to be highly knowledgeable, but is the practitioner relatable? And if yeah. they feel like they're being judged or shamed or misunderstood, then that that care can only go so far. Exactly. Or the care could end up literally with people dying. Yes. Um, yes. As we're yes. seeing in the Black maternal health crisis. And it's yes. it's also, yes. it's both... Black as well as Indigenous people who have the highest uh, rates of um, maternal death, um, you know, because, you know, women of color are often dismissed and not listened to. Mm -hmm. So to your point, you know, you could have a very knowledgeable, highly educated healthcare provider, but if they you know, see you as somebody who is drug seeking, if they see you as somebody who is being dramatic um, with your you know, complaints of pain, um, that something very life-threatening uh, could go undiagnosed. A lot of people have heard about this through Serena Williams' story. Yes, yes. Um, and I don't know if you want me to relay that uh, that story for your your listeners who may not have heard. Yes, um, please. Yeah, when when Serena gave birth to her daughter, who I think is like five or six now. Um, yeah, so that was in 2017. She went public, and and um, she's been speaking about it more uh, recently. And there have been other high profile women of color who have also shared their experiences if they lived. Sadly, many of them died. Uh, because they weren't listened to. And Serena has a documented history of having a previous, uh, what's called a pulmonary embolism or a blood clot in the lung, which uh, understandably could be fatal. Mm -hmm. um, and so when she delivered her daughter uh, by C-section, uh, she explained to the team that was caring for her that she was having shortness of breath. And she said, you know, I've had a pulmonary embolism before. I need, you know, to have a CT scan, which is the gold standard for diagnosing a uh, pulmonary embolism. Um, and I need to be put on blood thin thinners, which she had had before. And the 
the staff or her team was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're probably just tired. Oh, you know, go back to bed or whatever. Um, Basically, they dismissed her concerns. And from my perspective as a, a healthcare provider for many years, is that, okay, even if you think that this patient that you are interacting with is being ridiculous, being dramatic, um, seeking drugs, you know, the, the presentation of her symptoms are classic. What we learn in school for a pulmonary embolism, pregnancy is a highly coagulable um, state, meaning that just being pregnant alone increases your risk of blood clots. Abdominal surgery, C-section increases your risk for a pulmonary embolism or blood clots, being immobile because you've had abdominal surgery, you're not up running around and and moving around, increases your risk of pulmonary embolism. And a previous history of pulmonary embolism really increases your risk. So even if these providers were to say, ah, this woman doesn't know what she's talking about, the clinical presentation should have snapped them into action immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, and luckily she is alive to tell the story, but this has similar situations have ended, you know, with, with a mother dying and a baby being without their, one of their parents um, and the impact that that has on the community and the family unit, because you know, of implicit bias of black and brown women being dramatic or being drug seekers or not knowing their body and just, I don't, I don't really, I don't quite understand why the the thought is that a woman who is pregnant would be making things up or, or, or not be believable, but they can really, that, that perception can really lead to really terrible consequences. Agreed. And I want to talk about social determinants of health Mm -hmm. and why is it so important? So we could say racism, we could say implicit bias, but why is it important that we're aware of that terminology when it comes to treating a patient? Well, I'll just say racism is a social determinant of health. Um, and social determinants of health is, is kind of a, a term that's being bounced around more and more frequently. And it basically refers to the social conditions that have an impact on your ability to be healthy and your ability to stay healthy. I think the, the, the best example of this and why we're hearing more and more about it is uh, the COVID-19. You know, at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, all we heard on the news was about how black and brown people were dying more than anybody else. And there was, you know, talk about why black and brown people were so susceptible to COVID-19 or had such poor outcomes due to poor uh, COVID-19. And people were suggesting there were genetic reasons you know, genetic flaws or genetic variants that would, you know, make black and brown people physiologically more likely to die of COVID um, or, or black and brown people were blamed for being obese, 
blamed for having uncontrolled diabetes or having hypertension. Um, instead, once, you know, there was a lot of protest and pushback about that, again, that, that biased perspe perspe perspective and perception of people of color. And when we looked at it, we, we saw that black and brown people are front, frontline workers. They were the people who could not afford to stay home from work, who could not afford or did not have jobs that gave the option of working from home. And so instead of blaming race or using race as a proxy for risk, the risk wasn't the fact that these are black and brown people. The risk is actually the conditions that many black and brown people live under that put them at higher risk, poverty, lack of access to care, um, minimum wage jobs, or frontline jobs as home health aides and nurses. Um, so those were the factors that contributed to an increased risk of dying from COVID, not the fact that our skin color is darker because we have increased melanin. Um, it's the social factors that influence our ability to be healthy. So I always push back, you know, I often in a clinical setting, I'll have a, a, um, a sales rep, you know, a drug rep come and talk to us about their product. And often they will talk about how black people have an increased risk and increased risk of that. And I'm saying, you know, has that been gen genetically determined or is that a social implication? You know, a lot of people believe that uh, black people um, are genetically predisposed to hypertension. That's just not true. That has not been proven in any conclusive study. What we're not looking at is the fact that black people often have to deal with daily racism and the impact that that likely has long-term on cardiovascular health in addition to many other possible poor health outcomes. Mm -hmm. Juliet, you've worked both in the clinical and the community settings. What have been some of those stories, frustrations, challenges that people you've worked with shared with you? Um, meaning my provide the, the my colleagues, or are you talking about patients? Patients and clients, yes. Oh my goodness! Um, sometimes I'm shocked by some of the um, the interactions that patients have had with providers. Um, I, I mean, there's so many, but one that just popped into my head was a was a, a patient who identified as Asian and she went to her eye doctor and the eye doctor found something in her eye. I don't remember what exactly the condition was, but she told me that he told her that, yeah, this is typically found in women who are fat. And I was like, wait a minute, what? Wow. <laughs> Did he actually use that word? And the crazy thing about it was, is that she had a normal body mass index. So I, I don't even know how he decided that, number one, he was going to use the word fat 
um, as he was speaking to a patient, but how did he determine that she was quote unquote fat? Um, when I was looking at her body mass index and certainly how she presented to me in person and certainly would not have considered her fat and would never have used that word <laughs> to a patient. Um, so, you know, things like that are very, um, cause patients to not want to follow up because in, in this patient's uh, circumstance, she obviously did not go back to see that provider. Um, so it causes patients not to follow up. Um, and that may lead to negative health outcomes because they don't trust or don't feel comfortable um, speaking to their provider who is going to use that kind of language, that kind of language, which is judging and actually just rude for lack of a better word. Um, but I hear so many of those stories where patients are just not um, educated about their diagnosis or disease process. And so I often, you know, will we'll see the patient after they initially get their diagnosis and I have to kind of backtrack and make sure that they fully understand what they've been diagnosed with and what the, the prognosis is and the course. So a lot of providers, and again, that has to do with the systems in which we work, that a lot of providers are not given the time to spend with patients to really sit down and educate them. Um, so in, in the provider's defense, I'll say that, but also many providers don't know how to communicate with patients in a way that they'll, that they'll understand. Um, so it, it's just healthcare in the United States really could use an overhaul on so many levels because for the, the wealthiest nation on the planet um, and certainly one of the wealthiest developed nations on the planet, we have some of the poorest health outcomes some of our health outcomes actually rival developing nations. Mm -hmm. And for, embarrassing. for myself, <laughs> having grown up and worked a little bit in Canada before moving here, that was mm. one of the, I would say, the biggest light bulb, uh, just eye-opening moments for me when I started working at the pediatric hospital that I was at are all those things that you just mentioned. Like, how can we be so rich as a country but this is the care that, or lack of care, right? So we know a lot of people don't even have access to quality care. And absolutely. so we're seeing what we're seeing and that absolutely needs to change. Um, Juliet, I wanted to ask you, so you mentioned about providers and some may have good intentions about wanting to change the narrative, wanting to change the way they practice. How can we, all of us, manage our own biases and especially for providers who have, the provider bias? Well, you know, implicit bias is something that we all have. It's not just white people. It's not just men. Everybody has implicit bias and it develops early in childhood and it develops based on what we're exposed to or lack of exposure. So to give an example, if the only interactions that you have had with people of color are negative and you've never had a positive interaction with a person of color, that is going to 
form your biases against people of color. So it's both negative interactions as well as no interactions whatsoever. And so once we, number one, we have to acknowledge that we all have implicit biases. I think a lot of people want to say, oh, I practice a certain religion or I'm a liberal or I've never uttered a racial slur in my life. So I don't have implicit bias. That's not how it works. Everyone has implicit bias. There are biases that we don't even know about. Explicit bias is you being intentionally biased or prejudiced. Implicit bias are things that happen that we're not even aware of. And not acknowledging that, acknowledging that we all have bias is really the first step. I have a, a good friend of mine who um, we were, what were we talking about? Oh, we enjoyed the theater together. And we were talking about a neighbor of hers who is from, I don't remember where, an African country, I don't remember where. And she was talking about her neighbor in glowing terms about how beautiful she is and she's so refined and she's so lovely. And she said, yes, she's very European. And I, before I could even respond to that, she caught herself and she said, did did I just say that? I said, yeah, you did. And she said, oh my gosh, that's terrible. I cannot believe I said that. I said, you know what? The fact that you caught it and you recognized how biased that was, you are light years ahead of most people. So we are not perfect and we are going to make stumbles and mistakes. And we all are coming together with our own lived experience. But being aware of the fact that we all have biases and what those biases are so that in the moment you can catch yourself and you may not be able to stop the bias, but you can correct the bias. Um, I think that's really the goal. Yeah. And I think that is, like you said, the biggest, the hardest, but the most important step is just to have the awareness first and foremost. Juliet, you live in New York City, one of my favorite cities. And having (laughs) grown up in Toronto, there's just so much I love about the energy and of course, the people, the diversity. What is it do you think about living and working in New York City that makes it so special? Yeah, I was born in New York. I ended up growing up outside of Philadelphia, but I always say that I have like a dual citizenship because I spent a lot of time in New York. And then after college, I moved back here specifically for the reasons that you mentioned. It's just such a vibrant place where you encounter people from so many walks of life. Um, food that you, you know, from every single country you could imagine. Um, And I just love talking to people and learning from people and being a healthcare provider allows me, you know, to, to interact with people on a very intimate and and an intimate level and allows them to be vulnerable and share that I really feel privileged to get to know them, I think, even better than I would just interacting them in an office setting um, as, a, as a work colleague. Um, so I just really, I really love that. Um, I learn, I get so much from my patients, just as much or maybe more than they get, than they get from me. 
I really learned so much and I love it. Mm -hmm. And I can't wait to visit there again. It's just, (laughs) you know, if I can, if I can go there often, I would, there's something about the energy and just, I mean, that's where one needs to be right? Big part of travel. And this is what I want to always encourage my kids to do is just get out into the world and travel and live places and just immerse yourself in the culture, the food, the people, the language, because there's so much more than, you know, beyond place where one just can grow up. Right. Um, Juliet, if let's talk about, like you mentioned, all of us, the public, we're also patients. We, need to be more educated about access to quality preventative care. But for people that are listening, what are some ways, uh, steps that they can take, places they can go, resources that they can access to be able to become their own best advocate? Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to be honest about my bias that healthcare in the United States is it's really really lacking and for those of us who have resources who are educated um we have the ability to do research we have the wherewithal to if we have a, a healthcare experience that is not exactly what we want or what we feel comfortable with. We can go elsewhere. We can get a second opinion. But as I started saying at the beginning of our, our conversation, there are, I'd say the majority of the population does not have that option. And they have to accept the care that is available to them, which is often substandard. So for those of us who do have the resources, we need to know that we are empowered to have the healthcare experience that works best for us. And so if your interaction with your provider did not leave you feeling seen, heard, and cared for, we have the right and we should exercise our right to seek care that does make us feel um, the way we should feel afterward. We need to seek that out. And I think as Americans, we need to understand that we also have the power to advocate and lobby for universal health care. So as I criticize the American healthcare system, and you yourself know what um, what what universal health care looks like, Americans need to really analyze the, the political rhetoric that's out there around what universal health care, all the bad things that universal health care will do. Because while we're doing that, we have some of the worst health care in the world. <laughs> yeah, the record speaks for itself, right? Yeah. And we need to move towards universal health care. Health care should be a right, not a privilege. Absolutely. You know, as a still civilized society and a wealthy society, we need to advocate for universal health care. If any of your listeners know of friends who live in a country who has universal health care, I encourage you to ask them, how much did they pay for the birth of their child? Right. 
you know? Yeah. Just that alone. Just that alone. I remember just getting the bill with my first child and my jaw dropped. And I thought yep. it was a relatively, you know, smooth, uncomplicated, uncomplicated yes. pregnancy. And then I thought, oh my goodness, yep. so many people who have complications and delayed hospital stays and frequent hospital stays. And just the, it's just, it's astounding, but it's, it's unacceptable. It um, is. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And we don't have to accept it. But we also have to use our voices and use our power for the people that we employ, who are our political representatives, to push our country finally in the direction of universal health care. I think that's really what we need to be on, on an individual level. We need to use our power to speak up and advocate for ourselves and get second opinions or change providers if that's what we need to do. But we also need to do it on a systems level um, and on a policy level um, to advocate for universal health care for all. Yeah. And I think the biggest message takeaway from our conversation, the work that you do is that every person, every single person deserves high quality care because we've also seen just offering and making accessible the equitable Healthcare leads to fewer healthcare visits, less healthcare spending per patient, better health outcomes. So it's a win-win for all. So when I see or hear resistance, it doesn't make any sense to me because why no. not if we all win at the end of the day? I think that's also a lesson um, from COVID is that, you know, once you have a pandemic, a mm -hmm. pandemic means that nobody is safe. <laughs> you know, you heard at the height of the pandemic, again, those uh, in our society who had the resources to go to underground bunkers and fly away to some place that, yeah. that didn't have COVID, but it's a pandemic. It's going to catch up with you eventually. So if we think about the most marginalized, those people in our society who don't have the ability to run away and escape they actually have to be at the front line. If we focus the care on that demographic, it ultimately benefits all of us. If yep. we make sure that the most vulnerable in our society have what they need, it benefits all of us. And I think that's really the underlying um, uh, theory or the underlying feeling that should be behind pushing for universal health care because it ultimately benefits everybody. Yeah. And this goes back to my favorite quote of all time by Maya Angelou, which is, if we know better, then we can do better. And I feel like with the pandemic, we just know so much now. So there's no excuse to, to be dismissive or to turn a blind eye. Like Those issues have been highlighted to the point where you can't run away from it and we need to address it, and we need to deal with it. Absolutely. So on that note, Julia, where can our listeners find out more about the incredible work that you're doing? Thanks for saying that. Um, well, the probably the best place is on my website, which is thehealthequitynp.com. Uh, 
And on all of my social platforms, I have to admit, I'm not so great about social, but I'm there. I have, I have a presence. Um, it's Health Equity NP. And for other professionals, if you wanted to connect on LinkedIn, you can also find me there as well. Awesome. And I will be sure to include all of those in the show notes to make it easily accessible for our listeners. Thank um, you. Juliet, you are not just an valuable, incredible advocate. You are a lovely person. And I'm truly so honored that we connected. I am as well. Thank you so much for reaching out. And I always appreciate the opportunity to elevate my voice. Thank, Thank you. you so much. And, I, and this is teaching me if we're not having important conversations like this, then we're really not raising the bar high enough. So thank you for, for doing that, for having those conversations, for making it your life's mission and for teaching all of us to, to be advocates wherever and whenever we can. Thank you. And to the listeners, thank you as always for tuning in. Until next time. Thank you for listening to the Baby Steps Nutrition Podcast with your host, Argavan Nilforush. We hope you enjoyed our deep dive into all the tips and tricks you and your family can use to make daily life a little easier. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please leave a rating and review, share with others, and follow us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, at Baby Steps Nutrition Podcast. As always, you can head over to babystepsnutrition.com to sign up for our email list, as well as check out all the links and resources in the show notes. See you next time. Tune in. Feel great.